That's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Whittington alongside, and he will fake it and then throw it to the end zone. Touchdown, Franklin. Takeaways, Bennett Williams getting it going, and oh my goodness. Welcome back to the program. Bald Face Truth on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network on this 12th of July. Mentioned uh, Notice Big 12 Conference doing their media days today, and uh, that caught my eye. You know, Generally, the Wednesday after the All-Star Game, I've heard this mentioned before, is considered to be the slowest sports news day of the calendar year. And uh, I think Brett Yormark was like, hmm, let me capitalize on that. And so they did Big 12 Media Days. Seems much earlier in the calendar than uh, than the other conferences, but at the same time, um, I could be uh, wrong about that because uh, I do know Big 12 likes to go pretty early most years. Pac-12 will have its Media Day coming up on the 21st, Friday, in Vegas. John Cadzano will be there broadcasting live and we will have all the big interviews and uh, it will be a lot of fun. That is always one of my favorite days of the year as well. And let's get to one of my favorite guests on the show, Spencer McLaughlin. He's the host of Locked On Podcast Network with the Pac-12 Conference, Locked On Pac-12, and, of course, Locked On Oregon Ducks. And he's joining me now on the show. Spencer, thanks for making time, my friend. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you Thank you for having me back on the show. Yeah, man. Um, Big 12 had their media days today. Does it feel like college football is getting any closer? <laughs> yes, it does. Did you know that this is the last calendar month of 2023 in which we will not have a college football game? Ooh, okay. See, that mm-hmm. that makes me feel mm-hmm. a little bit better as well. I know. I know. I, I, I can't, you know, the realignment stuff is still crazy in the media rights, and that's, you know, dominating my Pac-12 show content-wise for sure. But I, I've had a number of people who listen or watch reach out and say, man, can you are you are, are you going to start talking about football? Or is, it, is it time to talk about football? And I was like, yeah, actually, it is time to talk about football because there's so much to get to, and it should be such a great, great final season of the Pac-12 as we know it. I'm not well, saying the Pac-12 will not continue to exist. But as we know it right now, this is the last year, and it should be just wildly fun. At least over here, you know, we're talking so much Dame Blazers drama, and, um, you, know, you know, rightfully so. It's just a massive story that will, you know, continue to – I'd be talking about, but then in the back of my head, I'm like, yeah, what, what's, what else is out there? And I'm like, oh yeah, let's just talk some college football. It's always a good time to, uh, to talk college football. Um, you know, you mentioned like the media rights negotiations. That's one thing that I don't know. I, I guess I'm a little bit exhausted with it. Cause I'm just like, I just want to see the final result and I care less and less about the process on how we get there. I just want to see what the final piece of the puzzle is, but I also don't want to be naive Spencer in thinking that, you know, the media rights, you know, um, final result, obviously it has an effect on what this con- uh, conference looks like and feels like moving forward. You know, wh- where where is your updated stance on kind of where things fit with the Pac-12 and the, the media rights negotiations? Any timeline that you get a sense of from what you're reading and what you're hearing? No, I, I, I don't have one because I, I, I really just continue – to get the sense that the Pac-12 presidents and the people negotiating the deal and the front office and everybody just 
don't have the same sense of urgency. And John Canzano's reported this uh, a number of times, most re- recently, I think yesterday, that, yeah, they're just not that worried about it. You know, we've kind of talked ourselves into uh, a circle of, of sorts. We're just going round and round on, are we going to get a deal? And we read between the tea leaves and look at this comment, look at this suggestion, look at this theory, look at that potential outcome and everything. And then it just leads to the same conclusion, which is, well, they don't have a deal and everything's terrible because they don't have a deal, but nobody's left either. So, you know, so for all the doomsdayers and all the, you know, naysaying about the Pac-12, what's going on around that out there about, oh, like, they don't get a deal soon, you know, people are going to leave. Well, clearly not, because they haven't gotten a deal this entire time, and nobody's left yet. It doesn't mean that schools aren't thinking like, hey, we need to be prepared, you know, and have an option if this deal is not going to end up being good enough to best suit our athletic interests. But, you know, I look at that Pac-12 media day and just think, look, if I'm George Klyovkov, do I want to go out speaking on the record for the first time in many, many months? and have to answer a bunch of questions about a media deal that doesn't exist. No, I wouldn't want to do that. But then again, I would not have basically punted on the PR strategy the way the Pac-12 has over the last several months. I would have had a more coordinated effort. I would have been more open and, and forthcoming with regards to what was actually going going on and who they're talking to and everybody like that. Maybe the media partners were asking for silence on that front, in which case their hands are tied. But I just think repeatedly, Judah, what we've seen is that the Pac-12 does not think like you and I do, does not think like most of the people listening to this program do. And so it makes sense in our heads, oh, boy, you got to have a deal by deal done by media day and whatnot. But they just continue to show that they're operating on a different timeline. They don't appear to be massively concerned about anything. Nobody is jumping ship. That noise that was you know, mostly noise quieted down and you know teams are clearly going to stay put until they see the the media deal and understand what the situation for the conference is so i wouldn't be surprised if we got an announcement of a deal prior to media day but i'm also not in the mindset of boy it's just going to be a a shock to me if you don't announce a, a media deal by by july 21st because you know i've i've gone past the point of no return you know, whether it's the San Diego State deadline or the number of comments that we've seen of like, oh, you know, it's in the final stages, it's weeks away, it's almost done and everything's yeah. like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go kick the football, Lucy. I'm Charlie Brown and I'm just going to say, no, I'm going to go play basketball instead. Oh, man, you're speaking to a Charles Schultz fan, so uh, I resonate with that. Certainly, Spencer, <laughs> appreciate that. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and be foolish for a moment and still walk down the line of San Diego State SMU as potential oh, yeah. expansion additions. Um, does that make you excited as, as a Pac-12 fan, the, the idea that San Diego State and SMU could come to this conference and what that would look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I love especially the idea of San Diego State. I, I think both in their own way have potential. I think SMU's got deep pockets and San Diego State's got a much better history of competing in in the two major sports. I think, I think SMU is still kind of the right coach away you know we'll see what they do this year in the American Conference now that you know the biggest competitor there is probably Tulane and Memphis uh, which are some solid programs and Tulane coming off their best season in uh, in program history beating USC in the Cotton Bowl last year the Green Wave are in a good spot but I mean without Cincinnati UCF and Houston who are in the Big 12 that's you know an opportunity you know the door is open for SMU to kind of show that they do deserve that power five offer, that they can win at a high level. They've brought in a great transfer portal class. I'm pretty sure it's still top 15 in the country right now, and they're still in the American Conference. They haven't even announced that they're going power five yet, and I think that can only increase their potential. But 
I, I think SMU is intriguing. I think San Diego State since 2016 is uh, about 7-4, I think is their record against Pac-12 schools. They beat Utah a couple of years ago, and the Utes went on to win the Pac-12 championship. So I, I think San Diego State's got plenty of potential. And look, if you're a Pac-12 fan listening to this, you know, a lot of people travel the games to go watch their teams. And what about a weekend in San Diego with a college football game at the center of your activities lineup? What about that sounds unappealing? Because I'm, I'm here for it, man. If you're up in the Northwest and it's October and you're like, well, my team's going down to play San Diego State. Yeah, weekend in San Diego just doesn't sound that bad. That sounds, that sounds pretty good. So, you know, it's not as if the conference, I'm not going to say and pretend that the conference is as strong with San Diego State and SMU as it was with USC and UCLA, but I think the potential of both schools is solid. I think they represent an intriguing level of upside respectively, but for different reasons. And, uh, you know, just as a fan, I'm like, yeah, having San Diego in the Pac-12, that just feels, that feels right. I was in San Diego uh, about a month and a half ago for a wedding, and it was, it was, it was awesome. It was just, I, we went to the wedding on Friday. It was beautiful. I played golf on Saturday. I played golf on Sunday. And I was like, yeah, weekends here. It's just, that's just a good time. And I, I think that that, in addition to the athletic upside, uh, is, is a net positive for the Pac-12 and, you know, basically the best option that you have at this point. I feel like that's something even the Pac-12 CEO group should be able to get behind, Spencer. Is, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, but, yeah but, but, but again, they, they, they should be able to do a lot of things. And Ugh. yeah, we just, we just haven't seen any of that materialize. So I just, I, I stopped getting my hopes up about it a while ago. Like one day we're going to wake up and the deal's just going to be done mm-hmm. and we're going to have no idea. Like pick a day between now and the start of the season and there is an equal chance that the date that you pick and the date that I pick playing pin the tail on the donkey is, uh, is, is correct at this point. Well, at least it would be before the start of the season at that point. Uh, it's all we can hope for. <laughs> Spencer McLaughlin joining us, Locked On Pac-12, uh, Locked On Oregon Ducks. Let's talk a little Ducks, Spencer, and uh, the quarterback in particular. Yeah. I know Bo Nix, a lot of opportunity in front of him here, and uh, gave a really insightful interview with uh, PFF that I thought was good, too. Um What's at stake for Bo Nix this season in Eugene? Well, his, his uh, opportunity to be a Heisman finalist is uh, possible. I won't sit here and say it's likely because there are so many good players and so many things have to go right. You know, the history of Oregon football is if you're going to have a Heisman finalist, you have to be squarely in the national championship picture. You know, they made the playoff in 2014 when Mariota won. They were uh, in the national championship game when LaMichael was a Heisman finalist. So, I think that's the first thing that would have to happen if he's going to reach that level. But I, I think the other thing too is, you know, he's been he's been flying up NFL draft boards this offseason because of the year he had a season ago. And if he if he produces on on a similar level to what he did in twenty twenty two, even fighting for an injury over the last few weeks of the season, then he can I think up his draft stock and solidify himself as a late first, early second round pick because He's somebody who's, you know, got the size, got the arm, got the mobility, but it's been the, the, the refinement, the polished nature of his game that just was never there at Auburn, and he just never looked like he was going to realize his five-star potential. And then he comes to Oregon, suddenly he's got an offensive line, he's got high-level receivers, he's got a good offensive coordinator, he's got a good team, uh, he's got a, you know, good enough defense that certainly struggled uh, at times last year. But I, I think that that all, you know, contributed to him having a really good season. And so if he, you know, shows that it was not a fluke, that it was not a one-off and that he can, you know, win when Kenny Dillingham is not his offensive coordinator. And those have been his most 
productive seasons from the winning side of things when Dillingham's been his OC, not always his play caller, but he was he was last year, then I, I think Bo Nix can solidify his draft stock as an early round guy, as a top three or four quarterback coming out of a deep quarterback class in 2024. And he can make a run at, at the Heisman Trophy. It's an uphill battle, but it's not an impossible one. His preseason odds are top 10. So I, I think that he's got plenty to play for there. And I, I think the biggest thing for him, honestly, is the way last year ended, the, the, you know, the collapse from the Ducks against Oregon State, not getting the conference championship game when they were good enough to do so and they'd been playing so well and, you know, losing the Washington game close. I think those things stung with him because he, he's the leader, he's the captain, and he's a guy who's now, you know, going to be in that position again from a leadership standpoint. And I, I think that he's ready to take that on, wants to take that on, and wants to show that, you know, he can lead a team to, you know, the highest level possible in, in college football. Around him on offense uh, are a lot of skilled athletes and what looks like a pretty decent offensive line, even though there's a, a decent amount of turnover there too. I've been kind of trying to nerd out as much as I'm able to and watching some uh, <laughs> UTSA stuff uh, off YouTube in this off season and trying to get a sense of what Will Stein is bringing with him uh, to Eugene. And uh, obviously the skill set at the receiver position is going to be a lot uh, higher than it was uh, with the Roadrunners. But tell you what, Spencer, that was a nice, nice offense that Stein put together with UTSA. What kind of early sense do you have, you know, spring ball being behind us now, and you're probably not showing a whole much at spring ball, and fall camp obviously still in front of us by quite a ways, but what kind of sense do you have in what the Wilstein offense might look like in terms of, you know, uh, perhaps personnel or just overall style, similarities, any differences that you think you can anticipate from what the Kenny Dillingham version looked like a season ago? Well, I think the two biggest headlines that Will Stein has given us this offseason are uh, the, the quote that he gave early after he was hired and then one that he gave, I think it was sometime during a, a spring ball. And, you know, the, the, the early quote that he had was feed the studs. You know, create one-on-one -on -one opportunities for your best players. Get your best players the ball in space and have them be one-on-one -on -one with a tackler and say, hey, try and bring this guy down. Try and bring down Bucky Irving. Try and catch up with Tez Johnson, the transfer from, from Troy, who's uh, Bo Nix's brother and is a really, really talented football player. Try to keep up with Troy Franklin. You know, just try and make a one-on-one -on -one play with those sorts of guys. I think that's the first thing. The second thing that he gave uh, in, in spring ball was, hey, you know, we're not going to come in here and, and try and reinvent the wheel, right? I mean, we saw Oregon's offense last year. It's one of the best in the country. They had balance. They had explosion. They had production. They can get better in the red zone with their touchdown percentage. They struggled at times uh, without a season to go, but overall they, they did very well. The numbers were very good. You know, high 30s in terms of points per game. I think they're around the 38 points per game, which is uh, more than enough to win you quite a few football games, which Oregon did last year. And, you know, I've, I've watched those uh, same sorts of clips over and over and over again, trying to understand what to expect from them. And, you know, he uses a little bit more pistol or at least he did at UTSA than, uh, you know, what Oregon showed a season ago where they went to it sometimes, but not often. I'm curious to see how often they do that. You know, there's some interesting concepts that you can run there. I'm not a huge pistol guy. I'm okay with it every now and then. I think it creates good play action opportunities and ability to get a deep shot. But on the ground, you know, I, I, I just struggle sometimes when you're going straight pistol halfback dive because, 
you know, your running back's got to run seven yards just to get back to the line of scrimmage. And, and that's just a long time for your offensive line to block. With an offensive line that is, as you mentioned, undergoing a lot of turnover this year. So I, I don't think it'll be exclusive or anything like that, but you'll see RPOs. You'll see deep shots. You'll see uh, play action. And, uh, you know, it's not as if Dan Lanning is going to be uninvolved with, with the offense. I think that's a, a pretty big misconception amongst fans is, you know, well, Dan Lanning, like not, a, not every coach, is like Chip Kelly, who, you know, there there were reports back in the day that he just he, he didn't go to defensive meetings, that he just wasn't involved, he didn't do anything like that. I, I've heard that on more than one occasion from people. But most coaches, especially ones who are not play callers on either side of the ball, which Dan Lanning is not, they're going to be involved with understanding what's going on on offense, contributing to those meetings, discussing the philosophy, putting in plays, having sequences in there that, you know, he wants to see and whatnot. And that's, you know, I think more of a joint effort than, than people realize. It's not that Dan Lang, just because he was a defensive coordinator, is never coaching Bo Nix or never saying anything to him, right? So I think the offense will look mostly the same. He might have a couple of wrinkles here and there. And I, I think the biggest area where he can improve is in the red zone. I think that's where Dillingham kind of showed his, his youth and inexperience at times a season ago um, is that you just had some instances where, you know, he tried to run the same play twice or didn't quite have uh, the offense as dialed or fine-tuned as it needed to be uh, once he got down inside the 20. And it's a tough place to run offense for sure, but I think they can, I think they can improve on that front. And, and I think Stein is uh, the sort of up-and-comer and young guy that you want to hire if you're Dan Lanning. And I, you know, trust him at this point because he's made a lot of really good hires, but, I, I think you'll you know see a couple different wrinkles from last year here and there, but mostly should should look pretty similar. Spencer McLaughlin, Locked On Pac-12, Locked On Ducks podcast. My sneaky hot take with Oregon State this year is that DJ Uyunglele is not the most important figure to Oregon State's success in 2023. It's actually Trent Bray. And the reason I argue that is because of the moving pieces in the secondary and kind of the lack of pass rush that Oregon state's had over the years, they're having to replace a lot of guys with a lot of experience, especially in the back end and not to mention their leading tackler, Omar Spates, who's off to LSU and Spencer. I just think if game scripts go differently for the Beavers, you know, where they're having to, to either play from behind or things are just a little bit more fragile defensively, I think that puts DJ in a bit of a tough spot, you know, whereas I think he has a chance to thrive if he's playing from out in front. I just don't know if this Beaver defense will be able to to put Oregon State in positions to play from in front uh, against stingy competition. What do you make of that? I think the balance for Oregon State fans they're looking for this season is how much better can our quarterback be compared to what the step back could possibly be from the defense? And, I, I think your take is sharp. I really do, because I think Trent Bray is really sharp. I think he is thoroughly good. This is an Oregon State team that switched identities in one year. They went from an offensive-led team to, you know, we're going to try and outscore you with uh, the run game and play-action pass to we're a defensively-led team, and we have one of the best units in the conference. And that all shifted because Trent Bray became the defense coordinator. So I think he's really, really good. And he does have some key losses. Jaden Grant, Alex Austin, out of the secondary from a year ago. Omar Spates gone as, you know, your your leading tackler and a kind of field general there at middle linebacker. Now, they do bring in 
Kelsey Howard, who's a four-star recruit, not the sort of guy the Bees get a lot, but he's out of the Las Vegas area along the defensive line. I'm curious to see if he makes an impact in, in year one because, you know, the Oregon State defense was so good a year ago. But the curious thing about it is, unlike most great defenses, they did not have a great pass rush. That was not something they did. They were just so good in coverage. And their defensive play calls were so ridiculously sharp that they were able to just kind of overcome that. And I question if they can do that again. But then the flip side of the coin is they went, what, 6-1, and 7-1 and one with Ben Goldbranson as their starting quarterback, who I think we all agree is pretty limited. So – if your quarterback takes a step up and your defense takes a step back, I don't need, you know, Oregon State doesn't need DJ Lake to go for 300 yards a game. They just need him to be in like the 230 to 250 range and throw a couple touchdowns, right? Or sometimes throw no touchdowns and just don't turn the ball over. So if you can accomplish it, remember Oregon State would have beaten USC last year if Chance Nolan hadn't, you know, gifted the ball to the Trojans four times. So if they can get that, from DJ, just average, you don't need to put up Michael Penix or Caleb Williams or Bo Nix kind of numbers. You don't need to do any of that, which is why it's, I think such a perfect fit because he was asked to do that at Clemson. Then you can have the same sort of season that Oregon State had a year ago. I don't know if you've checked their schedule out, Judah, but they, they have perhaps the most beneficial schedule of any of the six conference contenders this season. U- USC, UCLA, Oregon, Washington, Oregon State, and Utah. They have key matchups at home. They miss USC. They get UCLA at home. They have Washington at home. They're only tough road games, really. They have Utah at home. They have Oregon on the road. And there's one, there's one more game where they, could, where they could maybe still. I think it's Washington State. And they have Washington State on the road. But compared to the other schedules, they've got some high, high favorability in that sense. And if they can just get DJU to be what Chance Nolan was at the beginning of last year and have him consistently be that, I think they can offset a little bit of a step back on defense with greater production from the quarterback position. All right, last thing for you. Uh, you know, people high on the Beavs, high on the Ducks, high on UW, and, of course, high on USC and, and even Utah because, you know, they've been there and done that. But out of that kind of next tier of teams – I'll throw in there. You pick one of these teams that you think has the best chance or you're the most high on entering this year. I'm going to toss in Arizona, Washington State, UCLA. Which of those three teams are you the most high on as maybe being one of an under-the-radar conference contender? I don't know if I feel comfortable, frankly, putting any in the conference contender category because – I have questions about UCLA's quarterback position and what they're going to be doing there. It's it's either going to be the Kent State transfer Colin Schley or the five-star freshman Dante Moore or the veteran backup Ethan Garbers. Don't don't really know uh, what's what what's going on down there in in Los Angeles right now. But either way, in a quarterback dominant league, I just don't know if you can be average there and win and win the conference. So that's my concern with UCLA. Now Washington State could have a guy in Cam Ward, a quarterback, who if he plays the way he did in the second half of last year, Washington State can be an eight-win team. And, you know, like they could be similar to Oregon State a year ago. And I don't know if they could get to 10 wins, 
but I think Jake Dickert's a really good defensive coach. And I think Cam Ward is an explosive player and a dynamic one at the quarterback position on offense. Now, Arizona is the interesting one. I would say the most upside of any team is Arizona because I trust their offense and what they are bringing back compared to what they did last year. I trust them the most. Washington State's lost some wide receivers. They've got a new offensive coordinator. Arizona's kept everything the same. And if Arizona can just be a better defense, not a good, but they were they were a 5-7 and seven team last year with the 11th best defense in the Pac-12, second to last, only to Colorado, in points and yards allowed per game. Their offense is as good as any when they are able to run the football with just a little bit of success. Jaden Delora, when he's not turning it over, can be wildly productive, and he's got a couple of high-level receivers in Tetero McMillan and Jacob Cowling. So I think when you look at the Wildcat, I'll say I'm highest on them uh, over Washington State just a little. I think UCLA is a pullback team this year. I think they're 7-5, and 8-4, and four, which is still pretty good. But if you're talking about a dark horse, like, hey, watch for that team really popping this year and winning – eight, maybe not, but like, you know, eight-ish games, but you don't expect them to, I'd probably lean towards Arizona. It's great talking with you, Spencer. Thanks for making time, man. Yep. Yep. You're very welcome. Anytime. There he is. Spencer McLaughlin, a little football talk. Locked on Pac-12, locked on Ducks. Bounce the break. Come back. You've got the bold-faced truth.